It says that we can broadcast for up to eight hours. <laughs> I got better things to do. <laughs> it's the marathon mm-hmm. edition of the Freelancer Show. There we go. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. All right. Hello! (laughs) So we have two people in the chat room that aren't us. Well, that's slightly less than we get on a typical week. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, so what questions do you guys have? All right, here's a question. Basically, how long do you guarantee work for? So if you do stuff for a customer and then they get back to you, in this example, a year or two later and demand that like bug fixes be done, what do you do? Um, is there a standard guarantee you have, or is it just based on whatever you decide? That's Mine cool. is currently, I think it says 30 days on the exact software it was developed for only. So if WordPress upgrades or any plugins upgrade or anything like that, not valid anymore. I, I just don't do guarantees at all. And I mean, I'm still billing mostly either by the hour or by the day. I mean, typically I bill by the hour, but sort of in blocks of a day. And so I'll say, look, you know, this is part of the work and I'll work on it. You know, obviously I'll try to get it done as well as possible, as quickly as possible. But I found that offering a guarantee is just an invitation for people to come and take advantage of that. Um, now, I do have a current client where they keep making these distinctions between, well, such and such is a feature and such and such is a bug fix. And I think they believe, or at least the project manager believes, that I actually am going to treat these differently. Not, uh, I mean, I treat it differently in terms of priority, but I don't treat it differently in terms of billing. But she didn't sign the contract, the CEO did, and the contract says very clearly I'm just paid for the time I put in. So I, I don't put in any sort of guarantees. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much the same way. I don't have any kind of guarantee. I mean, if it's something that I did that broke stuff or, you know, something like that, then, you know, I'm okay going back and fixing it. But since, again, I usually bill by the hour, I am pretty well inclined to make them pay for the time that I spend fixing it. I absolutely do. If a client can't afford bugs, bugs are going to happen in software. If they can't afford that, then need to pick up something off the shelf and use whatever features it has and not complain about it if they don't want to pay for bug fixing. <laughs> That's all they can afford. Yeah, and I do I have to check my contract. I think it's like a 30-day after I say the project's done and they have, like, get back to me out bugs or whatever, and that's still paid for. Like, they still pay if it's hourly or if it's they need another week or whatever. I used to do guarantees just because I saw it on a bunch of the template contracts, but I got away from that, like, no one would use it or the people who did would try to abuse it. And so I just got away from it and basically said, if you have any problems within 30 days, maybe 60 days, uh, 
you know, we just add it on and I'll move my schedule around if it's like an emergency. And no one's really abused that, you know, for whatever, five or six years since I switched contracts. Hmm. All right. So the next question in the chat is, how much of your work is completely remote? We're thinking about moving in a few years. Do you think it would be possible to get enough remote work so the transition isn't too bad? So how much of your work is remote, guys? 99.9%. I actually see, I have two local clients, and I happen to see them more often at Starbucks randomly than anything for work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all of my work is remote as well. I have been hired by local companies. First contract I got when I went freelance was uh, come into our office and be here, but after that, it's all been remote. I would say that almost all of my project work is remote, but my training is all, at least for now, in person, and I've been doing a ton of training. So something like between two and four days a week, I'm out of the house training on-site with some company, but then the rest of the time meeting nights and the other days I'm working remotely and I'm typically because I'm in Israel and I work with people often in the US so that means funny time zones so you know while it's late at night for me it's during the day for them and I'll talk to them then that said I'm trying to move and sort of get set up a little more time for project work and less time for training because it's easier on the family uh, my kids and my wife really appreciate when I'm home as opposed to traveling even if I'm only traveling you know what other people do for a normal job I'm getting up in the morning, I'm getting on the train, I'm coming back in the evening. It's very nice to be home and be with my family uh, during the day. So I'd say it's definitely better. And can you do it? Yeah, you definitely can, but I think you should start putting the wheels in motion already. If you're planning to move, you should start trying to figure out, see if you can get some remote contracts already, even some small ones, so that when you move, it won't be a sudden shock either to you or to your clients. Yeah, and then the other part of that question is, do you think it would be possible to get enough remote work? And uh, my answer to that is yes. I mean, there are plenty of people out there who are looking, and most of them are reasonable enough to recognize that I want to work from home, and I don't think you're going to not have enough work it down. Anyone have anything to add to that? Look, I've definitely had some pushback from people on the fact that I'm not in the U.S., the fact that I'm not in their time zone, I think it definitely depends. There's some companies where they're totally okay with having people work remotely and they couldn't care less. And there are others where it's just, it's a full stop. No way can we talk about it. But I think Chuck's right. There's so much work out there. It's a matter of putting out your feelers and finding people and you will find someone who's okay with it. Yeah. When I've had the client that insists on it, I just charge them exceptional amounts that I think are just wild basically. And they typically go, oh, I don't want to pay that. So there's one recently, and I included like two days on site because they want two days on site to launch it, and the rest of the contract is very profitable, and it's not even right into the city for me. It's a short drive to one of the little bigger towns outside. But then like every day after that is like $1,000 a day for me to come in every day. So they looked and they said, I don't think we'll need you any more than those two days. <laughs> and, and that's what I've typically done. Like it's $1,000 a day for me to go into the city, and they say, why? I'm like, well, I can't work all day, and it's a pain in the butt. So that's what a pain in the butt costs for me. And then they say, oh, we can just deal with it on Skype. Yeah, we can. <laughs> yeah, I put it in my contract, not the contract, but I have had people insist that I come into their office and I tell them that there's a hassle fee and I'll put it in the invoice and it says hassle fee and it's, yeah, it's outrageous. <laughs> I've never met like face-to-face most of my clients, I guess, unless you can count Skype face-to-face, in which case I've met all of these guys too. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a new potential client that I've been talking to and send them a proposal and it was pretty clear I'd have to do much or all the work on site with them, not so terrible. But as part of the proposal, I also offered them some add-on support. 
And I made it clear, well, I mean, I think I made it clear by putting the word remote in there. We'll see what they think when they get back to me on the proposal. But the support that I would give them for the Postgres stuff would then be remote. You know, I said 10 hours a week. So you can sometimes mix it up a little bit with different clients depending on who they are and what sort of relationship you have with them. All right, so let's move on to the next question, and that is a question by uh, J. Jason Clark. It says, can you discuss the use of freelancers' job sites to find work, Odesk, Elance, Fiverr, etc.? They're good places to recommend clients that can't afford you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I do. Is what I get. It. I think I got it from Itibiz. I've talked about their site before, but they have a template that's like, how do you say no to a client without kind of pissing them off or burning the bridge? And it's a, one of the parts is like, you know, hey, if budget's an issue, maybe you can look for someone on you know, one of these sites or whatever. And for me, like I charge a premium price because I do a premium service. So there's a lot of times where I get sticker shock from clients that are just kind of shopping around. And I say, hey, I mean, go look on there. There's great developers on there. They can do stuff. You might pay more in the end. It might be a bit more hassle. There's going to be a lot more kind of project management, like time expense you have to do. But for some clients, that's if they don't have the budget, that's the only place they could go if they want the work. Mm-hmm. So I use that as kind of a referral source to kind of at least give them an option and say like, go here, look for someone like this. This is kind of the criteria you want to look for and kind of help them not write the ad, but kind of make it a little bit easier for them. Yeah, I didn't even find those very useful when I started out. I tried them a bit, but I've had more luck looking at um, other job sites, even Craigslist and finding jobs off there rather than being on any of the sites we talked or that were just mentioned in the question. I actually had one and have another great long-term client that I found on Elance. Every so often, every like eight months or so until I guess about two years ago, maybe even a year ago, I would sort of go and send some proposals. I'd say, yes, I know I'm more expensive than the other people here, but I think I'm worth it. I'm this and this and this. And there were actually some people who would bite on that. But at a certain point, I said, you know, the number of proposals I'm sending, even if they're boilerplate, even if this and that, the number of proposals that I'm sending on, say, Elance to try to find that one amazing client is just totally unjustified. And if I'm going to spend, even if it's an hour to a week, which is a lot, an hour to a week like posting such job things, I should be doing other stuff. I should be going to users group meetings and posting on my blog and, and making myself better known. And, and so that's what I've decided to do. So I've just ignored them for the last at least a year, probably more. And I don't think it's affected things in the slightest negatively. Exactly. Like there's I think two people um, on my newsletter who contacted me that get a lot of work. Like most of the work comes from there. And after talking with them about it, it seems that they have a strong, robust system for doing proposals, making bid pitches or whatever they're called, and not wasting a lot of time on it, but still getting results from it. And I think it's if you're going to get work off that those kind of places, you really have to have a process in place, and you have to, like, you're watching your sales time like a hawk. You know, if you're not doing it, if you're kind of more on the open market, you can, you know, you're, it's fine to waste an hour or two writing a blog post because that's a lot more valuable marketing-wise than, you know, pitching on projects. So I, I, I know people that can make work on there, but it's really hard. A lot of the people I talk to get work on there and are trying to get off it because it's so cutthroat. Yeah, the thing that I've noticed a lot of it is that people look at, when they're looking to hire on there, they're looking basically at your rating and your price. And so if they feel like they can get mm-hmm. a little bit better work for uh, you know, a little bit better price or a little bit you know, maybe a little worse price, then they're willing to hire people off of those systems But the other thing you have to realize is that it's much easier to land a client if you're the only person they're talking to about getting the work done. And that generally doesn't happen on those sites. Generally, you know, they'll post a listing or something and then they'll get a whole bunch of proposals and you've got to basically convince them why you're better than everybody else. Where if they're coming to you off of your website 
or some other system, then they may come, they may convince themselves, and then you're the only one that they're talking to unless they just plain old can't afford you. Right, and that's actually happened to me. I hired a, a couple of VAs off Odesk, and I spent time on the ad. I made the ad so it's like, you know, please put this special password in to, so I know it's you and I could filter out. I don't know, I got like 100 or something applicants filtered that out into like people who could actually work and were actually like seemed like they weren't just blasting it out there and it was still like 20 or 30 people and so I had to do like I think it was three rounds I think it was like another two after that to figure out like okay who's actually a good fit for me and at the end I was it was sucking so much time it was so hard that I ended up just hiring someone who had the lowest rate like I was like okay these 20 people are good I'm just going to pick this person and see how it goes and I think you know having the rates and having the ratings and all that on those it's nice for the client, but it also can kind of make it like a race to the bottom. That's the key thing with these sorts of sites, where it's 100% a race to the bottom. And yeah, I found that I was able to pretty easily demonstrate my value above and beyond you know, Eastern European and Southeast Asian companies that were charging you know, $10 a day for a whole group of people. But you've got a lot of other people, even in the U.S. and Canada and Western Europe, who are willing to take a hit on the initial project, hoping that they'll then be able to get a long-term gig with some client. And I just can't do that, and I'm interested in doing that, and I think I have better things to do with my time. All right, the next question is, does anyone have a contract clause to pause development without defaulting on the MSA, a.k.a. stop further work until the whatever round of funding? No. If they don't have money to pay me, then they can stop and they can start paying me whenever they want later. Like, it's not my problem. Your cash flow is not my problem. But they also pay you in advance, right, Chris? Always. That's another question coming up. What do you do with people not paying? <laughs> they just pay me in advance or I don't work. So I actually even had that last week where they said, hey, can, I, we know we applied for some new credit cards. Can I pay you later? It's like, you can pay me whenever you want, but I am not working until you pay me. So that's going to impact the thing. And you still owe me for the week because they said no to other clients this week. So you will still owe me for the week, plus you owe me any extra weeks. And they said, okay, well, we'll pay you at the end of the day. And I said, great, I will start work tomorrow. Yep. I, like I so admire that about you. <laughs> I can't imagine A, saying that to a client, and B, my clients, at least in Israel, actually respond. Um, but maybe I just have to try it. I um, couldn't either. It took me, I've said this, it took me a whole year to get to weekly pricing because my wife said, there's no way. And I just finally, I think I convinced her mostly and then didn't tell her I was going to do it. And now she loves it. So. <laughs> I think it just comes down to uh, setting expectations. So. You know, the expectation is you'll pay me and then I'll work. And so, you know, it's it's reasonable there. Going back to the question here, my answer is is that uh, we both signed the MSA. The MSA says that we can stop work at any time, either of us, and then, you know, they just pay me for whatever I've worked that they haven't paid me for yet. Or I'll refund a deposit if they've paid one. But I don't set an expiration on the MSA. Sometimes I have one in the statement of work that I send with it. In which case, then, you know, we just need a new statement of work, you know, to attach to the contract. But, yeah, I, I haven't really dealt with that. And if I need to change my rate or anything like that, then we just pull something out and sign a new MSA. Do you guys all have MSAs? Because I don't. I just have a contract I, I have clients sign, and it says, I'm going to be working for you, you own the materials. Like, you know, it goes through the basic stuff and then says, and I will be charging you X, you know, X in terms of a... a X amount per time frame. And that's it. And if I keep working with them, then it's still in force. And if it's not, if I stop working with them, then it's not. Yeah, I just have a contract. And mine also says that, I'll try to think about it again, but I think it's something along the lines of if they say, like if they delay the project enough, then I rescope the whole project as a new project. Hmm. Fair enough. 
Yeah, I got an MSA in uh, Statement of Work, SOW. And the way mine's organized, my MSA is like terms and conditions, uh, legalese, all that. Kind of sets like the defaults. So there's stuff in there about if they want to cancel the contract or like hold the Statement of Work, but there's no specifics about pausing. What how I would handle it is kind of a kind of like Curtis, but not as I don't have that confidence with my pricing yet. But it's uh, you know, do a statement of work for a week. If they want to cancel it and end that week early, you know, we'll negotiate how it would work. Probably just say sorry you paid. But if they want to pause development, like we finished out these like say three weeks, and they want to pause before they do another four or five, um, I just say okay, well the MSA is still valid. Um, I just won't schedule you, and then when you have the money, we'll just schedule another SOW and start again. Yeah, now my my payment terms say that like if you decide I'm an idiot after week one, you can walk away and you only owe me for week one. That's fine. I can do the same thing. I can say I'm not happy with this. I'm done. So I'm keeping what I've done. Here's all the work. You can take it to anyone. I hold no license on it. Just take it. So if they wanted to say, hey, we just don't have money. We can't pay you right now. That's fine. I just deal with it. I don't lock them in, which is part of the re- I guess part of the thing I give them for prepaying me everything, right? So I'm actually probably going to move in going to start looking at 100% prepayment, but we'll have to see because that won't work with necessarily with, uh, let's say, with my out clause because then we've got to wrestle money back, right, figure out who owes who what. So I know um, Kirk Bowman, who we interviewed on 109, actually does 100% prepayment, and if they delay a week, he rescopes the whole project, so they might owe him, like, 100% to get. <laughs> um, I, I should say, like, when I do retainer deals or long, I guess, retainer deals with people, I've done it a few times, I have a clause in my contract that says that either of us can stop it at any point, but we have to give 30 days notice. And on two occasions, this has really come in handy because, first of all, if you're doing a retainer deal, you're expecting certain income every month. And for them to just sort of come to you and say, bye-bye, can be really bad financially and professionally. So I guess I've done this three times with clients. And in two cases, they said to me, well, we don't need you anymore, but the contract says 30 more days, so I guess you'll be coming in here twice a week, <laughs> twice a week until then. <laughs> yes, yes, and they use stuffed animals as part of the communications team. <laughs> but there was, a, there was a third client, though, where it was a little messier, where basically I was doing a lot of traveling for the PhD, and I was going abroad to teach, and they didn't really need me, so they said, listen, we, we want to stop it. Now we know the contracts do sometimes, and I called the training company I work with, and they said, yeah, we can fill all those holes. So I basically went back to the client and said, fine, done, we'll, we'll just end it now. Yeah, retainers are kind of weird, like basically paying for access to you. So, I mean, if if you don't have access, like, you know, if you're traveling, like you said, it's kind of the client's not getting some of the benefit, but if they're paying for access for you and they're just not using you, that's kind of on them. What I do is I try to remind them at least every other week, if not every week, of, hey, we have this retainer, do you need anything? But if they don't take advantage of that, they don't take advantage of that. I had a support contract that was pretty much a retainer thing, and it was like that, like, they used me, like, two or three times throughout the year, and I kept following up with them, seeing if they needed work, but they didn't. So, I mean, it's good. It was a support thing, so they didn't need support, so it's they're fine on their end, but they kind of could have taken advantage of my knowledge a bit more. All right, should we move on to the next question? Sure. Oh, I know that there are stories for this one. Have any of you encountered any issues getting paid on time? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I always get paid. Or get even. <laughs> no, I just Certainly turned the not since on. I've done weekly. Right. I told you my big story where I just don't work, and that's been almost a year now. But even since then, I've been very lucky in that all my clients have paid me. I have one client that I've had for like five years, and every so often they, like, it goes past 
they have a few hours in a month that I'll do for them, and it goes past 10 days, and I say, hey, you haven't paid me, and here's your interest, and they just go, oops, and pay the interest. So, like, they've had them for years. It's not. I don't generally sweat it, and even when they haven't paid, like, I'll tell the development team, like, I just can't work for you, and the head dev goes, yeah, that's fine. I'll go talk to accounting for you. Like, if they want something else, they'll another time. So that's my my big one, but I've had them for so long, it happens every once in a while, and I typically don't sweat it, and it's that's the one I was just mentioning. It's you know, under 2% of my income in a month, so it's not that big a deal. Um, and I actually have a friend, and his account only works once a month, so my standard invoice time goes out like 10 days, and his account works once a month, so he's always late, but it's, again, like $25 for domains or something. It's not certainly nothing that I ever concern myself about. He pays me eventually, and that's it. Yeah, I have two stories on this. One is is I had I had a client, they wanted just a really simple site built. And so when I quoted him, I said, look, if everything goes absolutely smoothly, it'll be $4,000. And if it doesn't, it'll be $10,000. I'm guessing that, you know, because I was billing hourly, I'm guessing it'll be about $8,000. It turned out I was within like $100. It was $8,000. And so he paid me the 4000 up front. And then he refused to pay the other 4000 saying, well, you said it was only going to be 4000 Yeah. So I sent him copies of the email, blah, blah, blah. He didn't <laughs> send it to me. And so somehow I neglected to send him the rest of the game. Somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I got a whole bunch of nasty emails and things like that. But, yeah, eventually, you know, that's what it came down to. You know, and it's like, look, if you want the completed website, that's fine. But you don't get the code. You can't always do that, but in that case, that was something that I was able to do, and so they just didn't get the value back. Of course, I had to pay my subcontractors on that, and that's another issue, but yeah, that's one incident. The other incident uh, was last year. There were some communication issues between uh, my client and his client. I was actually subcontracting for him, and so he had to go fight them to get paid, and therefore I, you know, wasn't I wasn't paid, and eventually I don't think he ever got paid because his contract said, if you're not happy, you don't have to pay me. And my contract said, I don't care if you're happy, you have to pay me. (laughs) I do care if they're happy, but it it says you have to pay me anyway. So it it took him six months to to finally pay me everything he owed me, and so I had had gone way out on a limb to pay subcontractors on that contract as well, and so it was really painful to not get paid. And eventually what did it, he's actually a local guy, and and I have an answer to the next part of the question in a second where it says any tips for recognizing shady gigs up front related to this. But anyway, so he sent me the money in like May of this year, finally. And what it was was I emailed him and I said, you know, the next email is going to carbon copy my attorney so that we can start figuring out how to get paid. And that's mm-hmm. when he forked over the money. But the thing is, is he's local here, so he knew that I could sue him. And so I think that's why he wound up paying out is because all I had to do was take my contract and invoices in and he had no recourse. Depending on your contract, I mean, it's the the last straw and it's most of the time you're never going to get that far. But depending on your contract, you can say like how ownership is and mine specifically calls out even if it's um, work for hire where they own it, all the code, it says I don't transfer ownership until all payments are current and all that. So in a way, technically, if they don't pay you, they're using the half of the code that you've given them, but they're using it without actually ownership. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it's DMCA, but you can do legal actions and actually take it back from them and sue them and damages, you know. And that's like the atomic version of it. But uh, I found just bugging the crap out of them tends to work. Like one of my yes. first clients, I called their uh, AP office every morning for I think it was two or three weeks until they paid my invoices annoyed the crap out of them, but I got paid. 
Yeah, one other trick that I've used is that my contract says that I get, I think it's like 10% per month in late fees. Yeah. And so I'll email them after a month and say, you realize that you've just tacked on about $400 in, you know, or whatever in late fees. <laughs> and it's you know, fees. If you pay me this week, you don't have to pay late fees. You know, I'll, I understand, you know, things happen. And, and that way it's not this antagonistic thing. It's a, hey, I get that things happen. And so let me uh, help you out here. I, I understand and I'm going to be understanding, but I also want you to understand that I need to get paid this week. Yeah, and there should always be room for understanding. Yeah, right. I've sent invoices on you know a Wednesday, and then I get an email within you know 20 or 30 minutes from the head saying, "Hey, our accounting department is on a conference. They left today. They will not be back till next Wednesday. Is it okay if they pay you next Wednesday?" And I say, "Yeah, sure. You know, pay, get the invoice paid by next Wednesday. We're good to go." Right? And I have worked under those for a couple of days, but we you know we've been working together 15 weeks. Everything's been paid already all the time, so it's not a big deal. I'm not concerned overall. It's the extent of grace. The last one was, hey, I paid one invoice months ago, and now I'm actually paying for my first second week. Can I pay late? No, you cannot pay late. You know, on on the first time, you really owe me a payment on time. Yeah, like I, I, I had a client that was multiple year client, I think, and they lost my invoice. They actually lost it. I think it just didn't get transferred over, and it went in between their um, you know their AP cycles, and so it ended up being late. I'm like, yo, what's up? Like you're you're late on this, and all of them were like, oh. And they jumped on it and paid like right away, but by that point it was already late. I think it's something I need to do. I think I need to kind of send a reminder. I send a reminder around like net 15 and say, hey, FYI, you still have not sending an invoice. This is just a reminder. So I just had something with a client uh, last week in England. I've been working with them for about, I guess, three, four months now. And it's overall been okay. The first invoice they paid totally on time. The second invoice I messed up, and I thought I'd sent it, but I had not. So I sent it like three weeks late, and I begged them to pay me. Like, you know, a week later, it would normally be net plus 30, and they were nice about it, and they did. Took a little bugging, but they did it. And But the next invoice was, you know, totally fine, approved, everything. And so I guess it was, like, September 20th, payment on time. And I got an automated response from her saying, well, I'm on vacation right now. I'll be back in a few days. So I emailed the project manager and said, hi, I just want to make sure this is going to be on, done on time. No response from her about that. But I did get a response from her saying, oh, yes, I'll get back to you about your email messages soon. Comes October 1st, no payment. Comes October 2nd, no payment. So I emailed the bookkeeper again. I said, so what's going on? She said, oh, well, I have not received approval yet from the project manager for your project, so I don't think I'll be able to do the payment. And that's when I went completely ballistic. I mean, I was, I was on-site training with, with a client, and here I am like, having to deal with this email and this payment business. So I emailed the project manager and the bookkeeper. I said, look, this was invoiced on time for work that was approved that you are contractually obligated to pay me for, you had to pay me by October 1st, why is this not done? To which the project manager emailed me back. She said, well, you know, I'm on a train to London right now. I'm meeting with clients this evening, and then I'll be meeting with clients tomorrow, so hopefully I can deal with this tomorrow afternoon before the weekend. So I emailed her back and said, look, it does not take time. Call the bookkeeper, approve it. And then I sent her an SMS on her phone, and I said, this is Ruben. I know you're in a meeting. Please take the 30 seconds you need to call the bookkeeper and tell her to approve it. And what do you know, as Eric said, being annoying does have its benefits. Perhaps not with the people who live with you, but with, but with the other things. Oh. <laughs> and, um, and basically, uh, I got an email from the bookkeeper saying, yes, I've, I've approved the payment. Now, we'll see if we continue with this project. I'm not sure if they like me. I'm not sure if I want to work with them. But this was just ridiculous, and the squeaky wheel definitely got the grease. 
Yeah, what I would do after that is change your payment terms. So next time you renegotiate or whatever, I would say prepayment up front or you need to put a deposit of 50% and we'll draw off of that at the end, you know, put stuff in place. I've done that to clients where I've kicked them from uh, net 30 to like net zero to prepay before. And I tell them, it's like I have, it's a business risk for me to basically play the credit card company for you and give you a loan. I take checks, I take PayPal, I take, I have Stripe set up so they can pay with credit card. Like if you don't have the cash, that's the only reason you shouldn't pay me. And if you don't have the cash and you said you did when we started, that's, that's a different discussion. But you know, it takes maybe 30 seconds to pay an invoice. And I mean, I don't even care if they have the invoice number, just send me the money and then I'll figure it out and I'll account for it. And so, you know, sometimes you got to kind of treat your clients a little bit harder and say, look, you know, if, if you can't pay me, then we're probably, we're not doing business together because business is a transaction on both ends and move on. Right. So in this particular case, A, I know they have the money. B, I was really, really close to calling a member of their board of directors who's a member of like the investment fund that owns this company and complain to him because he likes me and this would have like ended in bad things. But basically I'm going to talk to them the next day or two probably about how we move forward with the project and how we move forward with payment. And I'm going to make it very clear that like either we change the payment terms or they have to understand they don't pay, I leave clients when they do this. And I have done that in the past with clients. This is just not, not a negotiable. As I explained to them, running a small business is hard enough without having to worry about whether people are actually going to pay me for work that I did and that they promised they would pay me for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had an old version of my contract that charged interest plus all my time to, at a minimum, like half hour per email to do it, and that was there. So every That's time I emailed them, it was like another half hour, and they get I'd get they get an email and an invoice. Here's your new one. Here's the email I had to send you to remind it, and they and like it would go up super fast typically. But they would get like one, and they'd be like, oh well, let's just pay this now because the pain was instantly their pain, and they'd be like, this is what the contract says. Every email is this. It's you have a like, contract. <laughs> all of this stuff, all this like getting paid. If you go to prepayment up front, all of this goes away. Like I, I've done this. Yeah, the past. my mind doesn't have it now. Yeah, it's like, hey, uh, I'll pencil you into the schedule, but before I actually give you a firm commitment and actually agree to do this, you need to sign the contract, sign the SOW, and here's your first invoice for the first week. Once all of those are done, then I'll schedule in and we can work on it. If someone's going to bump your time, I'll let you know, give you a day notice to get everything done. But if not, you can get your time bumped, and it's worked. Like I've, I've had people, I think within like 20 minutes of me emailing the invoice, I get a payment. So I'm like, all right, that's how we do this. Any tips for recognizing shady gigs up front? This is the other part of that same question. Trench codes. Dead giveaway. (laughs) So on the two examples that I gave, the first one, I knew he wasn't in the country and, you know, things like that. So what I did was I basically got a deposit up front. So I wound up getting half the money up front and never got the other half. So I did have to front some money for my subcontractors because I subcontracted some of the work. With the other one, I actually talked to somebody who had worked for him before, and he gave me some warnings, and I ignored them. And so... You took on the risk for it. You said this would be a fine risk to take on, and it paid out the wrong way. Yeah, for um, me, a lot of my client onboarding process is actually me telling the client I might not be a good fit, so you need to tell me why you're a good fit. And that's changed. That's changed drastically in the last six months, even the type of clients and how they pay. Like when I say this is how they pay, they just say, oh, okay. Because by that point, they're essentially chasing me, right? So even my first email, basically, it says, has a bunch of questions, and it says, I'm going to figure out if I'm a good fit, and they're all the next lines are like, no, 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 no. There might be other things that are better fit for you, and it's probably not me. Yep. That's how you do it. <laughs> yes, I play hard to get, Eric. You are correct. <laughs> That's not a bad thing, but... Look, it's, it, it, 
I mean, how do you recognize these people in advance? Well, my system for recognizing shady people is to tell my wife about the potential client, and she says, boy, these sound like terrible people to work with. And I say, no, 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 it'll be fine. They seem great. And then they don't pay, and she says, I told you so. And I say, actually, you were right. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of trusting your gut that definitely pays off there. Or your yeah, wife. like I... I tell a lot of people, like, I've written a series on it because I got tired of telling the same thing, but, like, figure out try to do a client stuff, and I use good, bad, and ugly because it's easy to remember, and kind of make a rating system, and rate, rate all your clients that are coming up, you know, let them know, like, or don't let them know, but, like, you know, like, if, for me, if it's an international client, it's a bit more risk, and so I don't knock them down a lot, like, I don't, like, I don't work internationally, but I say, like, it's a bit harder, because I can't chase someone in, say, Germany, like, it's going to be really hard legally to get them to pay, and there's going to be other hassles and stuff like that, so figure that stuff out, kind of, and uh, before you get into it a client, and then when you can, like, look at them and evaluate them, you could say, like, okay, this guy is, like, four out of five on these scales, so I'm just going to pass on this, or maybe you take it on, like, what Chuck did, and know up front, like, okay, here's the risk points, what can I do to minimize it, like, I can ask for a deposit. I can ask for payment up front. You know, I can... Another good one I found is to lock it down so the the actual project you're doing is shorter. So instead of being like a month long, make it a week. Make it three days. Um, and just renew it over and over. And so you get into this habit of, you know, having good successes. And you can see, are, are they going to flake out right away or not? But it's all, almost all of business is risk management. You know, figuring out what your risks are, where you're exposed, and either being aware of it or working on some way to get rid of it. Nice. Another question is, what do you do with a client that is 100% late? They always pay eventually within 60 days, but that's double the net 30 terms. Double the cost? I, like your rate? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd be very tempted to say, hey, you're going to pay that long? That's totally fine. Here's what it costs you to pay that late. That's what I would say. But it would be some multiple of enough that I think it's crazy for them because it's just not worth it for me business-wise. Yeah. That is extra risk for me, and risk is worth a lot, just like travel costs a lot because I just don't want to do it. So. Yeah, well, and for me, like, the time that I got paid after six months, I mean, it was nice to get paid, but for those six months, I may as well have not gotten paid. And there was a lot of hassle and, and other personal stuff that I had to deal with in order to make it work, so. Yeah, and yeah. my, like, with prepayment now, like, if they didn't want to pay me for 60 days, I guess they'd be paying me the whole time anyways. Like, their invoice would just keep growing a weekly rate all the time. So I really don't have to deal with that now, like, one day late is really all I've dealt with. And that usually the one day when I literally say, I'm not working, and then the next day I say, hey, we need to figure out how we're going to recoup this day, and it's probably going to cost you you know, an extra bit at the end of the project too, and that's the end of the late fees or late payments. Yeah. Look, I, I, I have a client like that now where he was paying kind of late, you know, get dragged out, and oh, really send out checks on the first of the month, and you invoice us on the second of the month, and then I would invoice on the last day of the month, and say, oh, yeah, well, I was traveling, I couldn't get to it. I'm thinking to myself, you know, the guy actually has a business. He has a few people working for him. It seems very strange, but yeah, Curtis is right. Like, like none of that is your problem. And I, I said to him finally, look, I, I need to get paid on time. This cannot work if you keep just sort of delaying these things. And sure enough, now, you know, this month and last month, the payment has shown up on time. But it's really, like, again, this is the sort of thing where just as the agita, it adds to my stress. It's time that I've just been on things. And I want to be doing other stuff. I've lived enough time as it is. I have one client, I subcontract for one freelancer and I really love working with her and she had a similar issue where she was late and she said, well, my client's not paid me late. And I said, listen, we'll let it go this time. We worked together for a long time and I like working with you, but that's not my problem. 
next time you need to save whatever you, if I'm invoicing you or you're signing the contract, you need to save whatever you think you're going to pay me, 20% extra just in case because that happens. And then you pay me. If you'd like me to invoice the client, I can have that discussion with them. And she decides what to work with her. She's awesome. And that time I said, let's just let this go. When you get paid or however you think you can pay me, just work it out because I don't want to do that because I like our relationship. And like I said, we still work together and we trade projects back and forth. You know, she does design, I do development. But it's, like I said, it's not my problem. This is your problem. So this is how, if you'd like to deal with it, this is how I deal with it. This is what you, or you should deal with it that way or figure out a way that works. All right, next question. How do you handle intermittent expenses? One-off S3 bucket for testing, a few fiber icons, copy text, etc. I think the profit margin should cover that. Yeah. Oh, really? My contract says if I incur any expenses building their software, then they will pay for it. And I just Mine does too, but like S3 is like a drop in the bucket. Uh, yeah. Fiverr is cheap. If it like copy text, like, you know, yeah, that could get into grand, $100, whatever. That I would pass on, or actually I would just make my client buy it straight up. Like I'd say, hey, here, buy this thing. Bone it so I am done. That's the um, key. I, I've had terrible problems where I bought things for clients and they have to pay me back, and then who owns things and so forth, um, domains and whatever. I much, much, much prefer to say to a client, just please buy it. Here's what you need to do. Yeah, my general expenses like servers and stuff, I just pay. That should be it's part of my profit margin, right? If I was, you know, when I do A/B testing and I have to, you know, get a more expensive Optimizely account, that's just part of the profit margin I built into it. When they need a plugin, that is something they buy and they provide to me. Because I've also had not even, you know, who owns it. I guess who owns it, but them coming back later and being like, hey, you know, I need to get an upgrade key, or me having to bug them later about renewals, and I don't even want to deal with that. I have way better things to do with my time than that. So they'll buy it, they'll give me access to their account, I will set it up for them, and then they get all the invoices for it. And the few clients that I've had say, hey, I want you to buy this for me, I literally just double the price. I say, okay, it's going to cost you this much for me to buy it, plus my time to go do it, and because I don't want to do it. And that's, you know, that's trying to account for the long-term pain in the butt factor. That's and again, like I, that's that's. See, I make it their problem a lot. Have you noticed that? I just double the pricing on something, so that way it's their problem, and it's more convenient for them to do it the other way. We'll just that say, I think is better. If you want this theme uh, or this plugin, it needs to go through a purchasing department, which will take a bit of time. We'll have to cut a PO and you know add some kind of like BS around it, so it does justify the extra expense. No, I don't even do that. I just tell them it's a pain in the butt. This is how much it costs to be a pain in the butt to me. And I tell them why, like, this is why it's not a good idea. And I've done it before, this is why it fails, so let's not do it. And here's the process. If they say, I'd still like you to do it, okay, that's fine. It's like $200 expense turns into, like, you know, $500 instantly. Double plus frustration, right? And, it, and it's that every year. It's that every year they want to renew it, too. It's double plus frustration. Yeah, I usually don't put those things on the, on the invoice unless it's a recurring something or something I wouldn't have bought anyway that's cost more than a few dollars. I include it in their estimates for them so that they can see it as a cost. Like here's your extra expenses, extra purchases that they can factor it in, but it's not an expense that they... I don't put it as an item that they're paying to me. It's just an extra expense or extra purchase they need to make. Yeah, like if I know it up front, I'll document. I have... There's work product, which is what I create that's unique. There's third-party resources, which is typically open source stuff. Client materials, which is stuff they supply. And there's another category that's those kind of things. Like if they have to buy something, I'll document it there and like the estimated cost or whatever. I wouldn't invoice them unless I had to get it, but it's just so that they know when they're signing it, like, oh, there's another 1500 for, you know, copywriting for a certain page or whatever. Even like I have clients buying a plugin, a WordPress plugin I sell, and I'll say, can you just get it? And they say, no, you need to go set up an account, purchase it yourself, and then do with it. Because then I'm, 
you know, if they decide to go with someone else later, I'm entirely divorced from the relationship outside of me as the plugin vendor. And so that's, and that's, you know, a separate chunk of my business. And I've had a few clients who are like, do you need the account? I don't actually need you sending me the login information for that one because I just can see your license keys, but you need to go purchase it first. Once you have purchased it, then I will install it on your site. Until that point, you don't, not, nothing. So which type of work is preferred for selling time work? Project feature based? When are you going to charge hourly, right? Yeah, that's what I think. Under these type of projects, don't charge hourly. <laughs> no. Basically, the, the advice of the evening is just do what Curtis does. Yeah. Well, I'm going to just sit silently now for other people because I think it's a actually, bad idea to charge hourly. <laughs> no, I, actually, I, I would love to get to where, where you are, Curtis. It's, it's very impressive what you've managed to do in terms of your contracts and, and billing in advance and so forth. Just say no and be mean to your client. seems to work. <laughs> uh, that's what I was maybe. Yeah. I'd love to dispute it, but it doesn't sound like it. I do have to say that a lot of times when I'm talking to clients, so for example, project and feature-based work versus staff augmentation, it still depends on the client, and, and, and you just have to talk to them and figure out what makes sense to them. So a lot of times they have, you know, a certain amount of budget that they're willing to drop on you every week or every month. Sometimes they just want to do it per hour and just pay for whatever time you're willing to put in. And sometimes they have a budget for the entire project or for that particular feature. And so what you may wind up finding out is, okay, this is what it's worth to us to get it done. And then you can figure out if that makes sense. But I don't know that it necessarily directly correlates to staff augmentation or project or feature or other types of work. Yeah, and Look, even I, when I'm uh, going in for staff augmentation, I'm selling my value to the team, right? So coming in, I think the last staff augmentation, it was getting the development process solid and everything else, and we were looking at, you lose this many sales when you crash your site on every launch. And so we're going to recoup all of those sales. And so selling based on value and then saying, here's my weekly rate, which I suppose is a unit of time anyways. Yeah, I mean, I, I found that it's harder and harder for me to sell myself for staff augmentation, and by the way, for those who don't know, staff augmentation means basically like you become more or less a member of their staff just on a contract basis, maybe for a temp you know, temporary unit of time. So you're there for a month or two months or even a week, just sort of help with the development, and because they they either can't or, or won't or, or uh, hire a developer. So I found that it's harder and harder for me to charge high rates for doing that. But as Curtis said, charging high rates for doing a very specific kind of development that they really need and that will help them get from point A to point B, there they're willing to, to pay a little more for and they see it in a different light. So the next question is, does keeping the code only work on single-person projects? All my projects... I think that's in regards to like if they didn't pay you all, like all the money right. they owe you. Oh. Well, in general, for freelancers, if you create anything, basically, then you own the copyright to it by default the way the law is written in the United States. And so if you write some code, then you own the rights to that code. And then in your contract or statement of work or you know some other document that has uh, some kind of binding legal agreement, you agree to either grant them a license to use it or you grant them ownership. And in either case, then they can use the code or the artwork or whatever else that you're freelancing on. And so it doesn't matter if you are contributing to a group project or whether or not you are working on your own, just you contributing to the project or people that work for you contributing to the project. 
you know, there has to be some agreement that the intellectual property changes hands. And if, you know, if the terms are based upon payment, then when they pay you, then the contract basically says you have an ownership or you have a license. And if they don't, if they fail to do that, then they just don't. And it's it's pretty much that simple. And even on pull requests for, on a GitHub, for example, which is a way of contributing a section of code to an overall project, you still own the code that you wrote until it changes hands. I mean, on a team, it might be a bit harder to, like, not give them the code or whatever, or enforce, like, taking stuff down, because you might be, like, one of 10 people working on the project, but legally, they're, in a way, violating... It's, it's in, in a way, it's like they stole the code from another company and put it into their project until they pay you. And so, legally, you can chase after them and do a bunch of things. Practically, it's going to be a pain. That's Usually, I just go to the client or the project manager, lean on them or lean on um, procurement or whoever is kind of holding it up. And I've, I've had a client before where it, my invoices were like frozen and they were like should have been approved, but they weren't approved. And it was just, you know, bureaucracy stuff. And I leaned on my, my project manager and they went and basically said like, send Eric a check. Like just, we don't care about PO number or any of that stuff. Just send him money because we need his help. And if we don't get his help, then this project's dead. And so that actually kind of, that broke the ice. And from then on, the project was successful and worked. But, you know, I could have at that point said, okay, well, my attorney's going to be sending you a cease and desist letter or whatever. And, you know, we're taking back ownership of that code. Um, you're using it legally. Therefore, your startup is infringing on IP and a whole bunch of stuff like that. But that's the case. They had more money and more time than me. So they could have fought it out in court. And even if I won, I would have probably lost my business or had to like deal with it for years on end. So it's easier just to, to try to get them to pay or to get them, like I said before, get them to pay up front. So it's not even a, a, not even a problem. Well, and the issue there is usually that you're basically threatening to cause them more hassle than it would take for them to walk down the hall to accounts payable and get you paid. And that's, that's kind of the deal with getting paid once it goes to the point where it's kind of a discussion anymore. Yeah. But some, some companies were like, if, if you sue them, like, the project manager now is not even involved. It goes to the legal department, so it's actually out of their hair too. So that might be easier than getting you paid. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, try not to get in that situation in the first place. But if you do, I mean, sometimes you just walk away. Like you just have an unpaid invoice and you just you write it off and say, I couldn't collect on it. You know, it sucks, but it might be it might be the better thing to do for you personally, emotionally, and also for your business to just write it off, find a new client, and replace the income. I did that once when I worked for lawyers, twice actually when I worked for lawyers who basically partway through the project said, eh, we're lawyers, we're going to, you know, we can take you to court and you can't do anything about it basically because I'd never be able to afford lawyers, right? That's basically what it came down to. Their email was, you know, legalese and crap. And I just looked at it and said, it is not worth it in any fashion for me to do this. And I wrote off the money and my wife and I dealt with not having that much money for a bit. And I know my dad even, who's a fighter, said like, they're probably contravening all these laws and... My uncle, who is now a lawyer but wasn't quite at the time, was saying like, "Oh, I could totally help you with this," but I'm not like I'm. The stress alone in dealing with it was like fifteen hundred dollars, which was a lot at the time. It just wasn't worth it. I was like, "That is not worth fifteen hundred dollars to me." Like, I'd rather go get a second job than deal with that crap. Yeah. Yep. So when I was in graduate school, we rented our apartment to total deadbeats who did not pay us, and so we've had to deal with lawyers in court and going after them. And I realized it's not freelancing or anything, but the amount of time, energy, and money you spend going after people to get them to pay and then trying to get... We have a judgment in our favor. The judge was like, clearly these people owe you money for being in your house for two years. And trying to collect from them is just basically it's incredible, incredible hassle. And if it didn't amount to me signing a form once every eight months to a year, 
I would have given up on it entirely already. And now I've mostly given up on it, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I want to go back to the, the ownership question just for another second. And you'll notice that a lot of open source projects, especially if they have, you know, if they're using the Apache license or the BSD license or the GPL license, uh, they'll have their contributors sign a contributor license agreement that basically yeah. assigns ownership of their code contributed to that project to the project. And that is so that they can actually then distribute it without the developer having any recourse to say, you're using my code without a license. And so it really does come down to that, and a lot of times they have to be aware of it. Yeah, it's, it's, they compensate to, for it. it's to protect them. And I've seen that for a lot of times if people are getting venture capital or any kind of investment at that sophistication level, they need the IP stuff to really, all the boxes to be checked and all that. And so they'll use stuff like that or they'll use just simple little documents, contracts to make sure like, yes, I have transferred all the rights to this company. Even though there's this big contract that states that, having that kind of, so when the when they go for another round or whatever and they're doing due diligence, they can tell their investors like, yes, we own all this code, we are paid up, all that stuff. So and typically like you don't have to mess with it, the company will come to you and do that, but that's there too. So the next question I'm seeing, how long do you typically keep a client? As long as they're paying me. <laughs> as long as I'm happy working with them and they keep paying me. Yeah. I think I mean, a lot it, of my clients are, I don't know, we'll say say four, three, four months maybe at the long end. And then I have the odd, like I had the one client that I talked to with that occasionally just pays late because whatever. Like I've had them for five years. They came with me from $50 an hour up to, you know, I think I charge them $150 an hour for their small fixes now and they are quite happy to keep paying me. So They've never complained about a rate increase, and why would I stop working with them? And they're generally very easy to work with. When they say, hey, we need this, and I say, I can't do it for two weeks, they just say, yeah, sure, that's fine. You have a few that have drifted back, you know, every six months or something. They have worked for me for a few weeks. But, yeah, for the most part, it's usually three to four months. I had one client when I was first getting going. Actually, I had two of them. They were concurrent, uh, more or less, and they both were about a year, year and a half. But, uh, you know, it was a larger project on the one case, and it was maintenance on the other. And so I think it just depends on the contract. But, yeah, as long as they're paying me, and I'm happy working with them. So I've, I've had some clients now already for, what, five or six years? And if one of them hadn't gone on a business, then I probably would have had him now for more than ten years. Wasn't my fault, folks. Wasn't my folks. Wasn't my fault. <laughs> Those random website crashes weren't my fault at all. <laughs> No, um, I actually really like having long-term clients, very long-term clients. It's, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. It means that I'm an integrated part of the team. There's a huge amount of trust that is built up. And unfortunately, I, I often see that as normal or to be expected as opposed to uh, exceptional and nice. But no, I, I really like working with some of these people for long periods of time. And I tell people that when I start working with them, when I do an initial call with them, I say my basic criteria are I want to work with nice people on interesting projects for a really long time if possible. Now, I also don't work on a uh, weekly basis, right? So it's going to be a day here, a day there, um, or my employee will do stuff. But I, I really like, I'm very proud, actually, of how some of these companies have grown over time and really improved over time. A couple of my clients are four or five um, years. Um, I've had a couple that are like a year, maybe two years, constant. And then there's some that it's like they want a week or two weeks or three weeks, and then that's all they need. Um, and so, like, for me, the, basically, it's if I enjoy working with them, if they enjoy working with me, if, you know, they're paying and they're not doing anything stupid. And then the third thing is, like, if I can provide value. Like, if I can't provide value for them, I'll tell them, like, hey, 
you know, this work I'm doing, you need it, you want it, but I feel it's not that valuable, it's not the best use of my time, and I don't think of your money. Some clients will say, like, yes, but it's really important to us, and I'll help them still, but sometimes they're like, yeah, well, let's let's wrap it up after this month or whatever, or downgrade the amount of time or something. All right, should we talk about proposals now? Or proposals, how do you write these? Write all custom each time, or do you have a template, or do you just not prefer not to do proposals? Yes. <laughs> yeah, what are the I use my favorite to hate shower money on me without writing anything, but that that hasn't worked out so well. Um, I try not to write them. Yeah, I, I used to hate Sketch and really streamlined what I put in them, and that has helped exceptionally. And I do very similar to what you'd see in like a sales cycle, right? You describe the problem, and then I talk about my expertise, and I talk about my solution, and then I tell them the price, and then I end off with the con, and then I tell them like the next steps, like pay me the deposit and pay me. Or pay me the deposit, sign the contract, and then here's the contract at the end. And they can accept it right inside bid sketch. And so we're done like that one step in getting their project scheduled. I don't have any sort of template. I write project proposals from scratch, maybe because I enjoy writing, maybe because I'm foolish with how I manage my time. Both might be true. The thing is, so so here's the thing. I, I recently, just like uh, two weeks ago, sent in a proposal to a client. And I decided I was going to try you know, a radically new approach. Because in the past, I did this sort of standard proposal thing of here's what you want me to do, here's what I'm planning to do, and, and here's what I'm going to charge you for based on the estimated time. Um, and I tried the whole value-based uh, proposal sort of thing where uh, very much in sort of the Brennan Dunn style and what other people have talked about, which is this is where you are now. This is why it really, really hurts. This is where you want to go. I'm going to get you there. You're going to make in this particular case. I said you currently have um, a client who has paid you millions of dollars who's told you your product is useless. You want to sell to many more companies. They are not going to want to buy from you. This is worth millions of dollars to you. Thus, and then I can give them the pitch for hopefully what you know, relatively high price thing. And I really like. It felt different. It felt different. It felt better. It felt like this was really going to connect with them more. And even if it didn't connect with them more, I felt like this is the kind of style that I want to use in the future. So I may use this as a template in the future. But it, it was a, a very, it was a nice breath of fresh air to try this. It's a copywriting technique. Uh, Amy Hoy has a good description of it. It's basically for sales pages, but you can use it anytime you're selling and trying to persuade. It's pain. You know, like what pain are you in right now? You meaning the end client. So pain, dream. What would your life be like when that pain was gone? So, you know, if someone handled the project or your site was performing better, whatever, and then fix. And this is where you kind of describe what you're going to do to take them from the pain point to the dream. And that's kind of, that's the, the summary of it. I actually, I do more than that, but that's kind of how I base a lot of my long sales pages for my products and works really good. Yeah, one, one thing that I do is when I am doing a proposal or an estimate, I've done, I do both. You know, if it's, if it's hourly, I try and give them an estimate and I'll give them a best case and a worst case. Um, and then I usually come in somewhere between and say, this is what I think it's going to take. And I'm usually within, you know, 5% of what I think it's going to take to get it done. The other thing that I do is I also sit down with them and I start to figure out, okay, these are all the things you said you want. These are the things that sound like they're really important. And so I'll give them, when I give them a proposal or an estimate, it'll be, this is what I think the minimum that you want or going to need is, and this is what it'll cost. This is kind of the next level of what I think you're going to need and what it'll cost. And that way it kind of, you know, it'll kind of work out that way so that they get a proposal that matches what they need and then they can decide what they want. And sometimes they come back and they say, well, we do need the minimum level, but we also wanted these couple of features that I threw into kind of the highest tier. And, you know, and then they can kind of 
help me reprioritize what they actually want or need and then work it out that way. Yeah, options are great. I used them all the time when I did proposals. I don't do proposals anymore. Um, I found actually like what works really good is I try to send my uh, my master services agreement right away, um, mostly because it has an NDA in it. And I'd, I'd rather use my NDA than their NDA because my NDA is pretty, it works for both sides. Like uh, it protects me, protects them, and it's pretty easy. And if they agree to that MSA, like that's like 90% of the legal stuff right there. And then I'll use statements of work as a proposal. So I'll say like, hey, is this what you're talking about? And I'll explain it a certain way. And when they agree to that, then it's like, there's all my contract stuff. It's done. Um, we just do, you know, the deposit or the invoice or whatever, and the project's ready to go. I felt proposals was just like a whole nother documentation step. And most clients, like, they'd read it and be like, oh, well, we want to change a few things. And I have to do another proposal and send it back to them. And then it was a dance. And then after all that, then I'd send in the contract. And then they'd start negotiating on the contract. And I just cut that part out. So one client recently asked for a proposal. So I got a statement of work, filled it out, and then just changed the title from statement of work to proposal and sent it to him. <laughs> nice. Actually, um, I, in this proposal I just described, I tried the options. And I said, okay, well, you know, option one is just I help you out and fix your problem so your software is not unusable. Option two is I do that plus I train your staff to, you know, learn how to do what I'm doing. And option three is plus we add some potential remote support over the next year. Prepay to year in advance. This is where I actually got a little smarter on that. Because the odds of them actually needing 10 hours of help every month for the next year are almost nil. But for them to pay for that sort of peace of mind, hopefully it was worth something. So where I got a hint that this kind of options-based proposal is useful. So when the guy emailed me back, he said, well, here are some comments. I need you to update the proposal in a few ways. We're not sure which option we're going to go with yet. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, this really works. <laughs> if I present <laughs> it with options, then, like, he's going to feel like he has to choose one of them. And on any of them, I win. Right. Well, it's, I mentioned before, it's the idea of instead of choosing should we work with you or this other guy or this other guy or this other gal, it's how are we going to work with you? And re reframing the question in their mind like that, it's like it's psychological marketing stuff. So it's it works really good. And you know, even if they are comparing you against competition, it's okay. Is it your option A, option B, option C, or is it this other person? And so you kind of have more options, whatever, in the lottery if they're just going random. Yeah, and I usually tie like the middle option is the one I expect them to get, but the top option usually adds a lot of profit for often not a lot of work is what it seems like because it seems to work out that way easily, right? But we're solving, say, we're, that's that where we finally push that here's all the things we really wanted and here's the two things we dreamed of, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's their dream and so we can add a lot of profit to fulfill their dream. Yeah, and that last option is say, often over what they expected to pay, right? So if they expected 20, say 20 grand for the whole thing to get everything they wanted, we say, oh, and we can get your dreams for 24, you know, even though it maybe only cost, you know, cost me five or six hours to get their dreams in as well. Yeah, I mean, you would want to play with it. Like your, your low option should be below the price range. So if like, if their budget is a stretch, they can always pick the low option. Your middle one should be right around what their price range is, maybe a bit more. Um, and then the high one should be higher. And it's the idea of like, we told you we could spend 20000 but hey, for what you're giving us for 30000 like that's a great investment. We'll take it and we'll pay you an extra ten. All right, this is going to be the last question. Um, how do you divide up your work days in terms of blocks of time? Do you do an eight-hour day to three-hour sessions? Does it vary a lot? Poorly, in my case. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually, one of the things I like about going on site with clients or doing training is that it structures my day for me. That I go, I show up, I do the training, or I'm on site, I work with them, I come home, and then, well, then I have to deal with my clients who are abroad or doing the writing of my Linux journal column or all sorts of other stuff. 
So I, I tend to work way more hours than I should, and that's one of the things I'm sort of trying to work toward changing. And that's why I'm telling clients now, yes, I bill by the hour, but I do it in blocks of one day, and then they can sort of order a day for me. And hopefully over time, that'll just be the only time during which I work. And I'm, I'm hoping to move also to a, a model similar to Curtis's in that I'll then have a day or a half day defined. I just want to be Curtis, right? But I'll have a day or a half day, <laughs> uh, half day defined where that's when I have new potential client meetings or, or phone calls for that sort of stuff. Because right now, like I spoke to someone today, and he said, oh, well, I can meet on next Monday. I said, yeah, actually, next Monday I can meet, so let's do it. But, of course, that means now I've got a hole in the beginning of next Monday that maybe I will or will not be able to fill with other stuff. I think it depends, too. Like, when I'm doing weekly stuff, like, I, I do Pomodoro Technique all the time. I'll show you. I have a 3x5 card each day. <laughs> oh and so <laughs> this has, like, you know, some miscellaneous business stuff. But then you, you can see, like, this big old block with X's. That's the client work I'm doing that day. So I'll set aside anywhere from 8 to 10 Pomodoros and try to get as many of them done as I can. And then I have 2 to 4 for myself to like do business stuff, marketing, sales, whatever. That works really good, and I don't have to worry about like when I get it done. Like some Actually, yeah, this day I had to do something first thing. So I did my thing first thing, and then I did the client work after. Other times I'll jump right into client work, do that in the morning, you know, halfway through the afternoon and then have the afternoon part to myself. But it just depends. I especially with Pomodoro of other things, I really like to block stuff out. So I work on one thing, finish it, move on. That way I don't have the switching cost of going back and forth. And so meetings are kind of a if it's meetings that aren't like the client I'm working with, it's a bear because I have to schedule around it. But if it's meetings for a client, those go on the Pomodoro and I just I put an M instead of an X just because I track like how much time am I in calls and all that. But for me, it's, I try to do an eight-hour day. Uh, it's running season, so I'm usually doing a lot of running. And, you know, that kind of chops half hour, an hour off the beginning of my morning. But I basically I work from nine-ish to five, you know, take an hour for lunch or so. And just depending on how the day's organized, depending on what I have going. Some days I'll take off and I'll do, you know, if it's no client work, then I might only work four or five hours that day and just kind of take some time off. Yeah, I usually hit the office between eight and nine, depending on... Again, my wife runs, so if I'm watching the kids, so she can go run early, and then I'll get out most days around between 4 and 4.30. And then one day a week, I go for exercise later, later, so I take off at like 3.30 that day to go for a run or a bike ride or something. And then I really don't do any client work Fridays. It's my general schedule. I might answer a couple emails, but that's even optional. I just tell my clients I have a previous engagement that takes all day every Friday. It happens to be with my bike, sometimes the movies or something like that. It's a business admin in the morning and then like a recharge afternoon. So whatever I feel like recharges me that day, which is usually cycling Sweet. or sleep, hiking in the mountains, but occasionally it's like just sitting at the coffee shop and reading a book or something. Nice. What what I've started doing is a couple of things. One is each day I kind of pick the one thing that I have to get done that day. So if it's work for a few hours for a client, then, you know, whatever. I actually built myself a little app that, that I used for that and... uh it was kind of inspired by the episode we did with Kurt Elser where we talked about that, uh, and it's todayisasuccess.com. And the other thing that I do is uh, now on Mondays, one of the first things I do is I sit down and I kind of schedule out the week. So it's, uh, you know, I make a list of the things that I need to get done this week. Um, lately I've been recording videos for a video series that I'm starting, and so um, so I'll schedule the time that you know, I need to do this video on this day, I need to do this video on this day at this time. I do have podcasts to schedule around. I, I do five podcasts during the week, so it keeps me pretty busy. So then I know, okay, well, I'm doing a 10-minute video, so you know, I'm thinking it'll take me two hours or three hours to 
you know, research, get prepared, get it recorded, do the editing, all of that stuff, and then get it ready to be released. And so, um, you know, I figure that in. I figure in any client work I need to get done. I, need, I figure in any other admin stuff. And that way, I don't feel like paperwork or doing the books or anything else is going to take over my day because I can time box it to like 20 minutes. Yeah, and the, the most important thing is important. That sounds weird. Um, <laughs> I got the idea from uh, Leo from Zen Habits. I'll show my little card again. This is today on the side here. You might not be able to see it. There's like a D and then there's two asterisks. Those are like my three most important tasks. And the D is actually I got from Stephen, Stephen Pressfield, Art of War or War of Art, whatever. And that's like what one task do you have today that you're afraid of the most? And that's like your dragon type. I have a dragon on my desk to remind me. It's the idea of, you know, like old knights, like slay your dragon. Today, that's the podcast because it's video and I knew, you know, we're going to have a lot of technical problems and just weird stuff. Um, but it might be like sales calls. It might be like, oh, I have to work with a digital or a difficult client or it might be giving a training that I never done or whatever. And it's not necessarily the most important thing, but it's the one that you have the most anxiety about. And I found that like, that plus the, the other two most important tasks is like, that's amazing. Like I make it. I'm not going to bring up this other sheet, but I have another piece of paper that says, like, do each day, and it has, like, have I done my three MITs for today? And so far, I've had a streak of, it uh, looks like almost two weeks of doing that. So MITs. You know, that's, that's a good thing to kind of to do, and I plan that, like, the morning of or the night before. What are MITs? Uh, most important task. Uh, I think there's a blog not, post. Let's try to find it. That's not what I heard MITs stood for, but okay. <laughs> I, I want to see uh, Eric spending the Pomodoro with his dragon and his knight. <laughs> I don't have a knight. I had a bunch of Legos as a kid, and I think my mom threw them away. I had a, like some really cool knight figures I would have put on the desk next to the dragon because the, the sizing would have been perfect, but eh, whatever. And I all I have is a My Little Pony coloring book for when the kid comes by and needs to color. Well, you could make it like Slay Your Little Pony, but that sounds kind of weird. <laughs> I I don't think that that would go over so well with the kids. My kids love my whiteboard. Oh yeah, my kids have glued stuff to my whiteboard. That made me really happy. Oh my um, god. Anyway, so are we doing picks on this one, or are we just going to release it? I have picks if we have them. Okay, we can do picks. Eric, the first one. Uh, it's an episode uh, starts for the rest of us. It's probably one of my top three favorite podcasts. Episode two hundred two. It's Outbound Sales for Startups with guest, I'm not even trying to pronounce his name. It's about startups or bootstrapping, but the sales advice works, I think, almost perfectly for consultants. Um, one good takeaway I got out of it was to take a little bit of time, make a document of common objections that clients have about your service, like you cost too much, you're remote, whatever, and come up with a very well thought out, well reasoned one or two cents answer and kind of memorize it or know it so like when you're on a sales call live and they come up with that, you're like, oh, well, you know, like we don't want to hire you because you're remote. Well, working remote lets me use the best tools that I have at my access, and it also lets us take advantage of time zones. Since you're East Coast, I can actually watch your servers three hours after you leave work before you get home, you know, stuff like that. That was a great show. And my second pick, this is more for the exercise people, I got something called The Stick. I'll put it back here. <laughs> expandable. Curtis and I were talking about like foam rolling. You use it on your muscles when you get sore. This thing's amazing. I think actually they make a bunch of different sizes, but I think if you sit a lot or all day doing this kind of on your legs or wherever like kind of gets sore or tense, it might actually help and make you feel a little bit better. Um, I 
did a session before we started. It took like five minutes and just kind of rolled out my legs, and I've been standing this entire time with no pain. So it's a nice little thing, and I don't have to get on How the ground. How painful is it, Eric? It's as painful as you want to make it because it's bendable. Like, look. Like, see, it's not that bad. You can kind of just roll it. or you Home can rolling is almost always just painful. Yeah, because you're putting your body weight on it. So, yes, you are, and it's a good core workout. Yeah, but I, I like this, I mean, just because... I could never get balanced right on foam rollers. And they make like travel mini ones. So it might be good for if you do a little bit of exercise or like I said, if you're kind of stationary most of the time, it might help to kind of, you know, if your back hurts, your neck hurts, whatever. So Yeah, before the call he said he rolled out his legs and I was like, okay. It, I was thinking <laughs> deployment or maybe that he needed to roll them out before he inflated them. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Ruben, what are your picks? Okay, so I've got uh, two picks for this week. First pick is, I know that Uber gets a huge amount of press, much of it negative. Uber does not exist in Israel yet, but there is a local startup that I think has expanded to a few other cities in Europe and in the U.S. called Get Taxi. And I've used it a few times, my wife has used it a few times, and it is so addictive to not need to have cash in your pocket, to know when the driver is showing up, to see them on GPS, on a map. So I, I called for a taxi with Get Taxi. I guess it was uh, about a month or so ago. And the driver, you know, it says he'll be coming five minutes, four minutes, ten minutes, eleven minutes. I thought, that's kind of funny. And I watched on the map as I saw him go all the way to another under area of town, clearly dropped someone off and all the way back to me. And he came to me and said, boy, there was terrible traffic on my way to you. Uh, and, well, it was very nice that now I had a tool that I could rate him poorly for doing that, and so I've, I've just really been enjoying this app. And the second one is, uh, like Chuck, I've put together a small, like, you know, one afternoon, one day project. Uh, this is for, to help me in uh, learning Chinese. This is based on Kurt's visit with us a few weeks ago, so it was two weeks ago, three weeks ago that we spoke to him, and he encouraged us to take ideas and run with them. So if you go to drillchinese.com, you can practice your reading of Chinese characters. And if it all goes well, then I may expand it to other languages as well. But for now, this has been fun and, for me, quite useful. Anyway, that's it for me for this week. I still think you should have called it Fire Drill Chinese. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I saw that. <laughs> all right, Curtis, what are your picks? I'm going to pick 13 books that I read last month. Lemony okay, goodbye, everybody. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> I read all the Lemony Snicket series last month, uh, and they're pretty simple. They're you know early teen fiction books, and they are simply fun because sometimes you just need something fun to read. I thoroughly concur. Those are, my, I think, my favorite book series for kids. I read it twice, the whole series, first to my two girls and then to my son, and I think I probably enjoyed it more than they did even. It was just so much fun. After the fourth one, they changed a bit. I was getting a little tired of the fourth one, but I looked through, like, kind of advanced through some reviews, and people said, oh, they start to tell a longer story arc in the fifth one, I think it is. And so then it's a longer story arc that kind of carries you through a bunch of things. That made it better. So, But that was one of the books that I wanted to read and even read through and see if the kids... And, you know, if I want to read 52 books in a year, occasionally you have to read some simple fiction. So. <laughs> Uh, you should say, like, Lemony Snicket has a new series out that the first two or three books of it, third one is coming out around now, which is written as, like, hard-boiled detective novels, but for kids, and also super funny. Not quite as funny, but still very, very funny. And if you should search online for uh, Lemony Snicket playing, or Daniel Handler playing the accordion for Princes When Doves Cry. Definitely, definitely worth watching and listening to. <laughs> as I now waste the time of all of our listeners. Uh, yes. And mine, i got to call in two minutes. So I've got a couple of picks. 
so the first pick actually is related to my phone. Ghost in the Wires, I listened to it on Audible. It is a terrific <laughs> book. It's about uh, Kevin Mitnick. He was oh. a hacker that you know, got caught a while back, and now he does security consulting, but it was... It was really, really fascinating to listen to, just all of the phone hacking and computer hacking that he did to uh, get all the all the stuff that he wanted to to get and uh, just his point of view on things and you know why he did it and all of that stuff i mean it was it was super good i couldn 't put it down um, another book that it really made me think and I really really enjoyed it is Think and Grow Rich by napoleon hill i 'm um, actually considering doing a uh, study group on the book. And just getting together on a setup like this on Google Hangouts, um, I don't know that I'd publish them because I want people to, you know, actually talk about uh, their lives and stuff, and I don't want people to worry about saying things that they don't want public. But uh, it was it was a very very uh, inspiring book, and it's it's something that I would like to go back and, and read through again. The final pick is that I found out that there is a recall on the iPhone 5, which and the battery would go dead. So I, this is a battery case. And if I pull it out, if I would pull it out before, it would actually die within about 10 minutes, even if it was fully charged. And so I took it into the Simply Mac store out here, and they replaced the battery in like 10 minutes. Of course, I had to wait in line for about 45, but they replaced the battery in like 10 minutes because I had one in stock, and it's been working great ever since. So I want to pick Simply Mac just because, you know, the service was terrific. It wasn't their fault they had a big, long line. Anyway, so those are my picks. Yeah, and maybe in a week or so I'll have a pick or an anti-pick of the battery I bought to replace my iPhone's battery. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right, well, I think I'm going to stop the broadcast. Um, I know we have a few people in the chat, so what I'll probably do is uh, paste the Google Plus Hangout into the chat, and that way you guys can just join us here for a minute because I'd like to talk to you and see how this went, what you thought was great, what you thought wasn't great, and just uh, kind of get a feel for who you are as well. So... Anyway, here you go. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.